0: And if you've joined us this morning and you're without a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisle right now, who if you just wave to them, they'll love to get a Bible into your hands. we like everyone to not only hear the Word, but also to read it and see it with their own two eyes. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're uh, studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we pick things up in that chronology in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and he spoke to them, the Jewish religious leaders, again by parables. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, "'Tell those who are invited, "'See, I have prepared my dinner. "'My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. "'All things are ready. "'Come to the wedding.' "'But they made light of it, and they went their ways, "'one to his own farm, another to his business. "'And the rest seized his servants, "'treated them spitefully, and killed them. "'But when the king heard about it, he was furious.' And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And Modesto's on that highway somewhere, by the way. And so those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found. Both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for every bit of your word. We thank you for every revelation that it contains of your mind and how you think and your perspective, how you see things, every revelation of your heart, Lord, what you feel about things and, and concerning our lives and beyond. And Lord, we just want to come to your word today and ask that by your very present Holy Spirit that you would use these verses in this gospel to fashion our thinking, our feeling, our processing, our doing, our eternities. And Lord, we know You're the only one that can give that kind of life to Your Word, that kind of application, no matter what our age or where we've come from in life or where we are even today. You know how to speak to us, Lord. And we pray that You would speak to us through Your Word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of the study of Your Word, that this passage would become a very dear friend to each of us in our life here, Lord, and in the life to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, we are given a glimpse into how God views man's rejection of his invitation to be saved, his invitation to one day find ourselves in the glory of heaven. There is a scene that is played out Uh, and has been all around the world for 2,000 years, and will be yet played out uh, all around the world today, where you'll have messengers, you'll have servants of the Lord, go out street witnessing or evangelizing, kind of uh, walking the streets and sharing the Lord, and sharing God's invitation of salvation, God's invitation to one day be in heaven with people, and so often with complete strangers. And very often in the evening or a day of street witnessing, a person that does that will come into contact with someone who has never heard God's offer before, never knew they needed to be saved, never knew there was an invitation that God had given that they could one day be in heaven. And upon hearing the news, they receive Jesus as their Savior. There are others that, scenarios that go on in life where someone begins to share with a, a friend or a family member the things of the Lord and God's invitation for salvation and, and to one day have a reservation in heaven. And the invitation that's extended to them by the family member will be met with a shrug and maybe somebody will say to them, well, that's good for you. I'm glad it works for you, but I'm a little busy. ...with my farm and a little busy with my business and the things of life and material things and getting ahead in life and I'm not interested in it right now. There's another scenario that will play out, maybe not so much in our country, but it is true of much of the rest of the world, where someone will share the gospel, God's good news of, of salvation, His invitation to be saved and forgiven with an acquaintance in some country in this world and that invitation will be met by that acquaintance where they will speak to the person and say, don't ever speak to me of Jesus again, don't ever bring that subject up to me again or I will beat you to a bloody pulp if you, you violate my wishes on that. And we all know how these kind of scenes are viewed from the vantage point of earth because most of us have lived those particular scenarios. But here in this parable, Jesus gives us insight into how man's refusal of God's invitation to salvation is viewed from the vantage point of heaven. Now remember parables, what they are. The word parable comes from a word that is made up of two words, para, which means alongside, bala, which means to throw. And so a parable means to throw alongside. It is Jesus who takes some circumstance in life that was familiar to the hearers, some physical thing that they all recognized, and He would take that and throw it alongside a spiritual truth of His or some revelation of God that they were less familiar with in order that, that to help them understand the spiritual truth or concept that Jesus was trying to teach. Concerning this particular parable, let's look at a brief explanation of it. Here we have a great celebration going on, the marriage of a king's son. That was a big deal in those days. Uh, The world in the ancient world was anything like our day today. For a family member to be married, for another family in the village to be married, was a huge thing. I mean, you would put that date on your calendar and you would count, not just the days or the weeks, but you'd count the months until that would happen. There was no TV. There was no Twitter. There was no movies. There were no 49ers. Praise the Lord, there were no Raiders. Sorry about that. I just had to get a dig in on that. But I mean, there, were, there weren't all these things where we're moving so quick and we got TiVo because we don't want to watch the commercials and we've got to move here and get and go and do and everything. Things were a lot quieter in those days. So a wedding was a big, big deal. And for a king to have a wedding, and for that king to be hosting a wedding that involved his son, that was just gigantic. And to have an invitation to that particular wedding, I mean, you would do whatever was necessary to clear an already uncleared calendar to make it happen. And so, here is a king who dearly loves his son very much. He wants uh, this marriage ceremony and this reception to be a great blessing to his son on his wedding day. The king is so excited for his son that he can't contain the joy of it in his own heart. He wants to share the joy of the event he wants to share the celebration, and so he sends out verses 3 through 7 the first invitations for people to come to the wedding. And so, verse 3 the first wave of servants go out to invite people uh, to attend. The response of those invitees is that they refused to come. So the king sent out a second wave of servants to invite them again, and even revealing the meal that had been prepared. He let them know what the menu was. By the way, there's a lot of beef on that menu. God bless you vegetarians, but don't hold that against us if we like that. So look at all the preparation I've gone into, the meal, I love my son. All of this is prepared for you, and he urges them to come quickly, verse 4 And you notice in verses 5 and 6 how they responded to the second invitation. Some of them made light of uh, the invitation to the king's wedding. And then others, verse 5, they just turned on their heels, they stuck up their noses, and they returned to their farms and they returned to their businesses, communicating to them that those things were more important to them than the king or the son or the son's marriage. And that would have been, in that day, that would have been a very, very deliberate and a very, very grave insult to the king and also to the son who he dearly loves. And then in verse 6, just when you think that things couldn't get worse in terms of the response of people to this invitation, they do get worse because still others are invited and they seized some of the messengers or the servants sent to invite them to the wedding. They proceeded to treat them spitefully and uh, even proceeded to kill some of them. And then in verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was enraged, and he brought a very righteous judgment down upon those murderers. Notice in verses 8 and 9 that the king, though, despite all of this rejection, he remains determined that the wedding celebration is going to go on as planned despite the insulting refusal of these first invitees. And so he calls his servants to go out onto the highways and then to invite anyone and everyone to attend this wedding and, ceremony and reception. And so his servants went out. They invited everyone. They invited good and they invited bad. That's everybody. So anybody and everybody got an invitation uh, to come. And the result, verse 11, was that the wedding hall was filled filled with guests. I mean, here's a group of people that didn't need to be sold on the significance of the invitation. They were flabbergasted at the fact that they would receive this kind of a, a invitation from the king. They knew a good thing when they heard it, and so they took the king up uh, on it. And so they came in to attend the wedding and the reception. Verses 11 through 13 during the reception, the king came into the wedding hall to mingle with the guests. That would have been a great blessing to a king in those days. And he immediately spots just someone that's standing in that crowd who is not wearing a wedding garment. And when the king spots this man, he came to him, and uh, he, uh, to the man who did not have the wedding garment. He confronted him, verse 12, and he asked him, How did you come in here? without a wedding garment, and the man was left speechless to the question. He gave no, no reply, and then the king ordered that the man be forcibly removed from all of the light, all of the joy, all of the celebration of the wedding uh, ceremony there, be cast outside into a place where none of that joy and light and celebration of the marriage feast could penetrate uh, into. There was It was a place of outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's the physical parable that all of the listeners would have recognized very readily in listening uh, to it. Something they're all familiar with. The spiritual meaning, the point behind the parable, is this. The king in the parable is God the Father, who is so wealthy that he can invite the whole world without limit in terms of numbers to come to the marriage feast associated with the wedding of his son and foot the bill. The whole world can come into that kingdom and he can support them and take care of them, not for the traditional seven days of a Jewish wedding ceremony, but forever. One of the great things that's going to be true about heaven, I'm not saying it's the greatest thing, But one of the great things is there'll be no mail there, meaning there'll be no bills. And we won't have to buy groceries. We won't have to pay M.I.D. or T.I.D. Nothing wrong with what they do. I'm not putting it down. We won't have to pay charge cards or what, even if you pay it off at the end of the month or any of those things. The whole bill for our sustenance and beyond is going to be footed by the king. No expenses. And not only no expenses for us, but we won't even have to have our minds be in, engaged in that kind of, of detail at all in heaven. Now, the son here in the parable is Jesus. And the wedding feast of the son represents salvation. Our future entrance into heaven by virtue of accepting God's invitation to be saved through faith in Christ, through faith in His Son. The Bible teaches that one day, all those that have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, that we're going to partake in what's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of Jesus in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 declares, uh, puts it this way, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is, the marriage supper of Jesus. The invitation to attend the wedding and the associated feast represents the gospel message. God's invitation to all people to become saved and to enter into His kingdom. The servants are those who are sent to deliver God's message of salvation to the whole world. You notice they were sent out in three waves. The first messengers in verse 3, they were uh, the disciples who went uh, had been sent out to preach the gospel during Jesus' three and a half year public ministry, specifically to the Jews. And those servants that had been sent out during that time, John the Baptizer... The twelve apostles were sent out. You remember there was a time where Jesus sent seventy disciples out to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so that preaching went forth, but the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of the apostles, the preaching of the seventy, even the preaching of Jesus had largely been ignored by that group of people. In verses four through seven, a second wave of messengers that was sent out, that refers to the proclamation of the gospel during the time that's recorded in the book of Acts. From the time of Jesus' death upon the cross, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, all the way until the time that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And during that particular time, as you would read in the book of Acts, it's all there for you to see and to read, but during that period of time, the message of the gospel was largely treated with contempt. Christians were persecuted even, and even murdered in an attempt to silence them. Stephen was murdered as one of these messengers, one of these servants. Virtually all, all but one of the apostles would die a violent death uh, of persecution because of their faithfulness to carry this gospel this message of the king out into the world and they were killed by Jew and Gentile uh, alike the third group verses 8 through 10 of messengers sent out by, by the king refers to our day all the way until the end of the age uh, the, the second coming of, of Christ where the gospel is being shared but, uh, the invitation by God to be saved and to go to heaven is being shared by us, His people, with anyone and everyone. The good, the bad. I, when I share the gospel, I never say, are you good or are you bad? I don't ask them their height. I don't ask them their weight. I don't ask them their age. I don't ask them their education. I don't ask them any of that stuff. This gospel that we take is to anyone and everyone, no matter what kind of hyphen is associated with them related to the culture. Now, those who were not willing to accept the king's invitation, that represents the, what was the general condition of the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day and the Jewish people themselves. The gospel went out to the Jew first. And then to the Greek, as Paul says in Romans. And they, they, these Jews that in, in Jesus' public ministry, his, they met Jesus' invitation to be saved with a, a, a resolute unwillingness to accept God's uh, invitation. They made light of it, as is mentioned in verse 5. Literally, they neglected it. That invitation was met with a collective yawn. How boring could that be? I've got a farm to attend to. I've got a business to attend to. And they considered those things more important than their souls. The Apostle John put it this way in his first chapter of his gospel concerning Jesus and His ministry to His own, to the Jewish people. He came to His own, and His own received Him not The great multitude of anyone, everyone, bad and good that is mentioned in verses 8 through 10 who ultimately filled the king's palace represents the great number of sinners and commoners and Gentiles who have responded to the gospel, to God's offer of salvation, His invitation down through the ages. Some lessons from this Parable, and I think it teaches us several things. This parable reveals to us the great love that God the Father has for His Son, Jesus. He loves His Son. He was thrilled to put on, to host this wedding, for Him to be married to the bride of Christ, to put on this lavish feast that would bless the heart of the Son, and that would honor Him in a way that He was worthy of honor. And the Jewish religious leaders at this time are actively plotting the death of Jesus, and they needed to know that they were plotting the death of a Son who is and was dearly beloved by a Father in heaven. I think that this parable also gives us a very great and valuable insight into the heart of God behind His offer of salvation to each of us. It it is like a king giving a wedding feast for his son. He is excited about this offer of salvation. And I mean, as you read the early part of the parable here, He is so excited to spread the news about this wedding of His Son to invite these people into His very home and and into his, His kingdom in this way. And His invitation to us, God's invitation to be saved and to one day enjoy heaven with Him, that's a priceless invitation. That's an invitation that every single person ought to Uh, receive and, and have it provoke a sense of awe and privilege in every single one of us that hears that invitation. Again, it was an unimaginable honor to be invited to the wedding of a king's son. And to get that invitation in the mail or to have it come by messenger, I mean, people would have to pinch themselves to... Make sure that they weren't dreaming. How much more to receive an invitation from God Almighty to spend eternity with Him in His home in heaven forever. The parable also reveals to us that the Lord is very eager to share the glories of heaven and salvation with us. And again, that's very, very amazing to me. To me, as I read this parable, there's a a terrible sadness about it in the early part of the parable. Here you have, and it's Jesus, he paints the picture of his own heavenly father. Here you have a king who wants nothing more than to bless his son and to bless his people. Everything about him. Everything about his motives, it's just pure, it's holy, it's a motive of love, and yet before the early part of the parable is over, his very heart and his offer of salvation is rejected. In the rejection of that invitation, they trampled underfoot the very heart of, of this king. And it was trampled underfoot. Foot by the very ones that he loves and desires to bless. It really breaks my heart to realize what our refusal of God's invitation to salvation does to the heart of God. I would never want to be guilty of that, of needlessly breaking his heart. We also learn here that from heaven's perspective, refusing God's invitation of salvation is a very grave insult against God. It is an insult to God Almighty, to the God of the Bible, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And by refusing to come, the guests have deliberately and publicly insulted the dignity of the King who had counted on their attendance and had graciously prepared a great banquet for them. And we need to realize that it is an even greater insult to refuse so great a salvation that God has offered to each of us at tremendous expense to Himself. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, speaks with uh, tremendous strength on this issue. I'll read it to you, Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him, that is God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This parable also teaches us to be careful that we don't dismiss God's offer of salvation the way that all of these other people did in the parable. Apparently, God must Kind of keep track of what people refuse him over because he keeps mentioning the same things. Being unwilling to receive the invitation. Making light of the invitation. Esteeming business or farms or material thing to be more important than their souls. The idea that by becoming saved, this is somehow going to hinder my advancement in life. It is responding by being violently opposed to it. And almost all violence directed toward the message of the gospel is one where someone is already steeped in a religious system where Jesus threatens the foundation of that religious system and and then, and then threatens in a beautiful way to set the people free that are held in bondage by that religious system. But those that are invested in the religious system don't want that to happen. I think it's wonderful to realize also from this parable that it teaches that anyone and everyone can be saved, and it equally teaches that anyone and everyone must be saved. Those that are bad, when we came to know the Lord, we need to be reassured that we can be saved. I can't tell you how many people, and I know I'm not alone in this, that I've talked with through the ages about God's love, His forgiveness, His willing to forgive, the possibility of heaven. And they look and they say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've said. There's no way that God would have anything to do with me. And yet Jesus teaches here that no one is so bad that they cannot be saved. That's one kind of person. Then there's another person, kind of person, that hears the invitation of God to be saved and they come from a side of life where they are good. They are not absolutely good, they are not perfect, but they are good compared to the bad. And the idea that God kind of grades this whole thing on a curve and you just got to be slightly above the average and you get into heaven is a prevailing view about heaven today. But here is is the person that has lived a good life in comparison to other human beings. And what that person needs to hear is this parable teaches that that kind of person needs to be saved. Everyone, No one is so bad that they cannot be saved and no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so there's room for all of us. No one's excluded in the invitation. Well, before we wrap all this up, we have to ask ourselves in verses 11 through 13, what's up with that guy that came to the wedding without a wedding garment? What in the world is happening there? And uh, what's actually happening there is a second insult directed toward God that is very, very common on the part of man. The king comes again into the wedding hall to mingle with his guests, and he immediately spots a man there, we're told, who didn't have a wedding garment on. He's easy to spot, he was the only one in the crowd. And the king, king makes a beeline toward him and asks him a very simple question, verse 12: How did you come in here without a wedding garment? So what in the world's going on here? Well, you got this. Here's this huge gathering of people. One man stands out from among all of them based upon one thing. Based solely upon the fact that he is not wearing a wedding garment. Now we're told that in those days, especially as it related to kings, when kings would give a royal wedding, that they would provide all of the guests with a robe so that there would be kind of a uniform appearance there in the place, so the king could guarantee that everybody looked good. Now look at the crowd that God is inviting into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, and even in the parable before we get to that, ultimately He gives the invitation to anyone and everyone Good people, bad people, rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, anyone you run into on the streets. And so a lot of those people couldn't afford to go out and buy their own garment to be able to come in and 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 be, you know, in, as, a, as a part of that, that feast. And so you've got this whole group of people. They all end up uh, wearing the same wedding garment and the only way that any of that uh, seems reasonable or possible is that it was provided for them to allow for a uniform look of all of those that were attending the feast. Now notice that he alone, uh, he is alone in his rebellion. So clearly he has refused to come appropriately clothed and uh, he's in there inappropriate clothed by choice. And clearly, the king holds him responsible uh, for it. Now, this guy, this man without a wedding garment, is a very, very interesting person. He represents a very interesting kind of person. He wants to be at the feast, he wants to be a part of the celebration, but he doesn't like the king's terms for entering. He is the kind of person who wants to go to heaven when they die. He believes in the existence of heaven. He believes in God. None of that is an issue with him. What this kind of person doesn't like is they don't like God's terms for entering into heaven. They don't like the idea of being called a sinner. They don't like the idea of needing to be saved to get into heaven. They don't like the idea of salvation being offered as a free gift rather than something that we work for or that we can earn. They don't like the fact that there is only one way to get into heaven and that it is a narrow way and that it is through faith in Christ. And they are convinced that they can get into heaven on their own terms, clothed in their own righteousness, and that that will be good enough is a complete self deception as the king's speech reveals here how did you come in here without a wedding garment how could you even think that you could come into my son's wedding without being properly clothed how could you think that someone like you could come into the perfect holiness of heaven without being saved? What sense of arrogance, what sense of pride and self-importance and rebellion has blinded you? Have you come into my very home to insult me on the day of my son's wedding? The man gave no reply. Speechless. The question left him speechless. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times. I hear people, I overhear it in different places and, and uh, where people will say, you know, well, when I get to heaven someday, I'm going to tell that God a thing or two. You won't tell Him nothing. You will shake and hope you can control your bowels. I don't mean to be crude on that. It will be more awesome than the greatest order in the whole world can describe to one day stand before god saved it will be fearful to one day stand before him unsaved the bible teaches that when each of us puts our faith in jesus as our savior that our sins are forgiven but that's not the only thing that happens when we are saved, God forgives us of our sins, but then He additionally takes the righteousness, the rightness, the right onness of Christ and puts it to our account. So that for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, when God looks at us, He does not see our unrighteousness, but He sees the perfect. Righteousness of Christ put to our account—a righteousness that is likened to a robe, because a robe in a wedding feast covered everything. And the uh, prophet Isaiah spoke in the context of the coming Messiah, Jesus Himself, seven hundred years before Jesus came and gave the parable. And Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. And He spoke of this righteousness as a robe and said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for He has clothed me. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Paul put it this way, And He, that is the Father, made Him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him by putting our faith in Him and Christ's righteousness, perfect righteousness being put to our account. Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 4, verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so this man thinks he can get into heaven based upon his own goodness, his own good works. He doesn't need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ or saved like everyone else. He's extraordinary. He doesn't need a Savior. He doesn't need a salvation. And remember that Jesus is speaking to a very, very religious group of people. And he is talking to the Jewish religious leaders at that very moment who were convinced that they were going to get into heaven on the basis of their good works and on the basis of their human effort. And he's trying to get in, and Jesus is trying to get through to them that it doesn't work that way, and they will be terribly surprised if they try. Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said in Romans chapter 10, of those that try to establish their own righteousness before God, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. To try and earn my own way into heaven or to make myself acceptable through my own effort for heaven, is to, be, is to be ignorant about one of the great things in life a person cannot be, afford to be ignorant about. And a person that believes that they can make themselves acceptable for heaven is ignorant of this great fact, that the standard that is required in order to enter into heaven is perfection. A perfect righteousness. The only people in the world that are still trying to work their way to heaven are people who do not know that that's the standard. Because once I recognize that that's the standard, I also realize I've been less than perfect. In my life, so I am disqualified from ever entering into heaven on the basis of my own effort. And a person that recognizes that begins to look upon the whole landscape of all of the earth and says, I can't earn my way in. There must be some other way to get into heaven and have an acceptable righteousness. And to that person, the Holy Spirit comes alongside, takes them by the hand, and ultimately introduces them to Christ. They put their faith in Christ, and Christ's righteousness is put to their account. No matter how good we are, no matter how religious we are, we all still need to be born again, and clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Everything else is filthy rags at best. Isaiah put it this way, Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousnesses, that's what our best is, are like filthy rags. I could describe what filthy rags meant in the ancient culture, and I used to when I was younger. But I've gotten more conservative in my old age. Now, today, the Scot always wins over the Irishman. But our righteousness, our best, this is a filthy rag, compared to Christ's righteousness. They talk about this robes of righteousness and all those things. It always reminds me of, it, it pops a picture into my mind, when I was in junior college and I, I rented a studio apartment and I was working at a car wash and doing all this stuff and playing basketball and that's what my life was at the moment and I, um, uh, I lived in a, a, a studio apartment there were probably about 20 of them and, um, in a row and very, very small the bed came out of the wall Creak, you bring it down and there was a living room again it's actually very cool in its own way And, uh, you know, for an 18, 19-year-old. So, but one day I went down to the laundry room there. At the end unit, there was a laundry room down there. And I went in there. And somebody had thrown a bunch of clothes away in there. And uh, I knew knew what apartment they had come from. This guy was about 175 years old. And he was just getting rid of stuff. One of my neighbors. And he threw away this uh, peach-colored plaid robe. And I took one look at that, and I said, that's way too good to throw away. But not for the purpose of a robe. I took it back to my apartment, and I had it cut off so that it would be jacket length, put big wooden buttons on it, and proceeded to wear it around Napa. This is 1974, 75. You wore anything back in those days. Proceeded to wear it around town. For the next uh, year or so. Which is one of the reasons I believe that God had to remove me from Napa to bring me here. Or no one would receive the word of God from me. On the basis of the history there. That was a bad robe. But our righteousnesses are even worse. When the king ordered the man to be forcibly removed. Basically what he's doing is saying... Take Him out of this room and take Him to a place where the joy and the love and the celebration of this feast centered on My Son never penetrates. And that place is called hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is concluding commentary on all of this. Is in verse 14, where he declared, For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus' comment on the parable is that there are many, many invited to become Christians. Indeed, everyone. But comparatively few really accept the divine invitation. The parable encourages us to make sure that we're among that number. Sometimes people read this statement, and Jesus made it a couple times in His public ministry, and they say, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. They flip out and say, how do I know God has chosen me? Choose Him, and you'll know that He's chosen you. Because God's choosing of us, the Bible teaches, comes out of His foreknowledge. He knew, because He knows everything, who it is that would choose Him And He's known it from all of eternity. And so He has chosen them. And the only way that you can know is by choosing Him. And then you'll find out He has chosen you. It's really as as simple as, as that. God's foreknowledge and God's election never ever negates human responsibility and salvation. Because you notice there in verse 3 that when people were invited to the wedding, it was not said that they could not come, but they would not come. It is a mystery. God's election, predestination, man's freedom to choose. We don't have another hour to tear into all of that. But no truth about it is balanced or biblical that Mars one or the other. Both of them are absolutely true. I think that it's important, and I would like everyone to walk away from our Bible study here today in terms of thinking about this passage and have it be a lifelong meditation related to the passage, that when we read this, that we would, among other things, realize that it is from the perspective of heaven, a very grave insult to God Almighty to refuse His invitation to be saved and to one day be in heaven. Let's not insult Him this morning. Let's not hurt His heart this morning. Let's not even dampen His excitement over His Son and His gospel message directed toward you. Today's the day to be saved if you're not saved, to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to assure that one day you will stand in the glory of the heaven that God has prepared for you and wants you to be in the middle of. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. Have a badge on it, says prayer, so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to receive God's invitation into your life this morning. And then to give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. Take advantage of the opportunity. If you need prayer for anything this morning that's going on in your life, Of course, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand and we'll pray now.